Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We're uh, going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the theme is uh, Kingdom Manifesto. Uh, manifestos are kind of public statements of of desire, stance and desire. So uh, Fred rightly tagged this one, uh, the Sermon on the Mount being... Uh, Exactly that, a manifesto for those in Christ. But I'm forever stained, I don't know about you now, ever since, uh, I guess it was college when I first saw it, uh, whenever I come to the Sermon on the Mount, I'm stained by um, that scene where it starts framing on Jesus on the Mount and he's speaking to the crowds around him as they... They're sitting and it pans away and he's saying, blessed are this verse, those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. And then it waves, the, the uh, camera kind of spins over to the far distance where there's a group of people. And, the silent, and Jesus' mumbled words in the distance are broken by this lady saying, speak up, I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> and the Monty Python life of Brian spins out of control to blessed are the cheesemakers. Oh, that's an analogy. It means blessed are all producers of dairy products. <laughs> and one here, blessed are the Greek. And the Greek, oh, oh, and then one of the women realizes, oh, blessed are the meek. That's nice. They have a hell of a time, as she says in her English accent. So, anyway... Though, uh, in many ways, a sacrilegious kind of movie, it did do a very good job of pointing out our, I'll just be nice, stupidities as human beings when it comes to religion and Jesus. (laughs) So I'm forever stained by that movie, and uh, it's all downhill from there at this point. So, But I I think we should bless it. Bless the cheesemakers. I really do like cheese. A good cheese. So... Okay, so um, let me pray, and then uh, we'll read the, uh, the verse together, and then I'll get started. Jesus, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for being our Lord, sending the Holy Spirit to be with us, to lead us and guide us into all truth, and to empower us to be witnesses. And I do, I do claim that this morning. Uh, f- uh, feeling... Uh, Inadequate and unready, but uh, you are always ready. You are always adequate. I pray that you would give us wisdom. Uh, dear Spirit, guide us and uh, show us what you would have us do uh, from this verse. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, stand and read with me. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 6 which says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You can be seated. So we've all heard the phrase, nobody's perfect. Uh, It's a ubiquitous phrase used often. But what does it mean when we use it? In my experience... 
it is a, it is used as an excuse for mistakes or misses or intentions gone wrong. Sometimes it is meant honestly when these mistakes are made. Other times it's used to cover those mistakes. It's it's like an oops statement. It's the oops statement of our time. Uh, I'm I know I've used this. Uh, uh, ask how many of you have used perhaps. Well, nobody's perfect. If you actually do an internet search for the phrase, you will see that this phrase has been used as a title for music and movies uh, for multiple decades. I actually found a line that said it it kind of grew out of the 1980s, which I'm not sure if that's completely true, but it made me go, man, I need to go back and research that phrase. Nobody's perfect. But um, uh, songs, I even saw that Hannah Montana did a song called Nobody's Perfect. So in the last decade or so, when I've heard that phrase used, I've thought to myself uh, in my head, not necessarily saying it to the person using it, does that mean you know what perfection actually is? Uh, To make that statement, and nobody's perfect, and to make it meaningful is to assume that the state of perfection is known and maybe even attainable. C.S. Lewis, in the first chapter of his book, Mere Christianity, mentions something similar to this in the opening paragraph when he writes this. Now, what interests me about remarks like this, like nobody's perfect, is that the person who makes them is not merely saying that the other person's behavior may not please them. They are also appealing to some kind of standard or behavior which they expect the other person to know about. So when somebody makes that statement, nobody's perfect, they're assuming we all know what the standard of perfect is. That is something that we don't see. And uh, Lewis is narrowing in on that in this phrase. We all do it. We all make judgment on someone else's behavior, even our own behavior sometimes. And uh, we all appeal to some sort of standard. And we all appeal to standards that we think other people need to adhere to. Our current culture is rife with this. And social media has become a great peddler of such behavior and thought of judgment. I can tell you that I didn't have need for social media and, uh, and similar avenues of communication to be very good at appealing to a standard of behavior others should know about. I didn't need social media. I was, I'm very good at judging people. Maybe you are too. I do it easily and frequently. But many times we are quick to excuse ourselves from that very standard when we exercise such a phrase as nobody's perfect. We should not be shy about the reality of this phrase, especially as we look into uh, these three chapters in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. We should feel the weight of nobody being perfect. It should bother us. We should be driven to a level of desperation. And then rather than utilize the idea of being imperfect as an easy excuse for making mistakes, intended or not, we should truly see the weight of our inability to get things right. I'm not trying to discourage you here, merely not trying to merely just discourage. I'm also inviting you to hope, a desperate hope. 
Like Isaiah in chapter 6, we should all cry out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It is at such moments like this that we are ready for hope to deliver. You should all feel exactly this as you read the Sermon on the Mount. You should feel your weakness. At the same time, you should feel the hope given you. In this verse... Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, I want to look at two things. First, what is Jesus talking about here? Just, just dive in into the, the meanings, the words. And second, I want to talk about who he's talking about here. And then draw implications as I make the two, uh, these two points and perhaps uh, conclude with some further implications. Um, so let's, let me look at this, the What? What is Jesus talking about here? It's a short, uh, this is a short verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In these words, there's so much weight uh, in them. Like, for example, blessed, it can be a, a foggy word in our time because it carries a lot of religious and spiritual meaning with it. The word used uh, in the Greek is makarios which here is translated blessed, which most translations do that, but it could also be translated happy. Uh, These are good translations, but uh, with Greek into English, there's usually even more, like layers in a painting, there's more going on. Uh, When you look at some of the nuances of of original language, you can start seeing color. Um, to this meaning of translating it either happy or blessed. Now, it's good to be blessed. It's also marvelous to feel happy or be happy. But this word also means uh, to be fortunate. Fortunate are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It also means, could mean, uh, there's an aspect to it, envied. I didn't know that until recently. So, Jesus could be saying, envied are you when you hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's almost as if the word describes a state of being, a condition. The word fulfilled is a good one, as is fortunate. The theologian R.T. France, whose commentary I used uh, for this sermon, found a good secular example of this makarios state, the word Greek makarios in a secular poem from the 6th century B.C. Now, it was a poem. I had to read it. And it was attributed to the poet Anacreon. Anacreon. N-A-N-A-C-R-E-O-N. Anacreon. He lived in the 6th century. Who I found out apparently was very known for his drinking and erotic poetry. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's great. But I'm not reading that here. But this uh, R.T. France found uh, a poem from perhaps a purer moment from Anacreon, uh, about a cicada, about a grasshopper. And he said, this is a great example of that state, that condition. And this is the poem. We shall call you happy, cicada, when you up on the treetops, after you have drunk a little dew, you sing like a king. Yours are all the things you can see in the fields, all that the woods produce. You are honored by all people, sweet prophet of summer. The muses love you, and so does Apollo himself, who gave you your shrill song. Age cannot wear you down, you earthborn sage and musician, 
free from the suffering of flesh and blood, you are almost like the gods. So that's an interesting little vignette of this state of happiness, in this case, um, for a grasshopper. Uh, to be called this word blessed carries a tone much thicker than the way we define blessed today. And uh, I could actually enjoy being this grasshopper that Anacreon describes here. So, what a hunger and thirst. I love that Jesus used these visceral examples here of hunger and thirst. This is something that we practice quite often in our, have practiced in our history as a church. Um, addressing our hunger and our thirst. So we, we probably know a little bit about it. And this is something everyone knows about, being hungry and thirsty. Although I've never really truly gone hungry. So to experience true star, uh, starvation when the body begins to consume itself is not something we in America face, which is a blessing. But the word Jesus uses here could also mean to be famished or to crave. And that I do know about, uh, especially with food. But true bodily starvation is when the body begins to consume itself because there is nothing left besides the body to consume. Some believe that when it says in Matthew 4 that after 40 days of fasting, Jesus, he hungered or was hungry, was that that was of the moment when Jesus' body stopped I had finished consuming all excess on his body and started thinking about consuming the body itself. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it certainly makes medical sense in that the length of time for the limits of starving the body vary. I read it could be 21 days, it could be 40 days like Jesus. I even remember doing research on this years ago. There was one guy that went like 90 days of fasting. From food, That's pretty amazing. But So that can give you an idea of what hungry is. But we can also crave and hunger for other things like love or friendship. Here Jesus mentions righteousness. Now, for example, like extroverts crave people to talk to. Introverts crave extroverts to find other people to talk to. <laughs> when I've traveled away uh, from my wife or she has traveled away from me, I find that my desire for her company grows. I crave it. Perhaps that's a little bit of what Jesus was getting at here. That feeling that sometimes in, in your soul or just outside, you feel it just sort of outside your body. I'm, I'm craving something. I, you know, I want it. Now, as for thirst, when I was in high school during my summers working at an amusement park at the beach in Delaware, yes, I was a carny. Uh, in the heat of the summer, as the crew worked the rides, we would all get thirsty. And so many times one of us would walk around to the workers, our, 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 our friends, and say if he wanted a soda to help with the heat or a Coke. I remember especially those times when I was really thirsty, uh, tipping that cold can of Coke back and emptying that whole thing in one giant pool. The carbonation would sting the back of my throat, which made the experience all the more thrilling and satisfying. Uh, that's, that's the moment that came to my mind when I thought about thirst, is that feeling I had, just downing that, um, that can of Coke on a hot summer's day. 
So when I see those commercials that do that, I, I relate to that. Though I haven't seen those a lot lately because I don't watch that as much anymore. A human being can last what varies from 21 to 40 days without food. A human can only last three to seven days without water. At this point, I have to read Psalm 42, 1 and 2, because it's only appropriate. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my, my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I find it interesting that in the rest of the Beatitudes, Jesus describes characteristics or events that happen to someone uh, that are about Blessed are the pure in heart. You assume the characters of your pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, or the cheesemakers. The peacemakers. Uh, they're, they're peacemaker, they're pure at heart, etc. Uh, even something that happens. Blessed are you when they persecute you. But here, in this phrase, he's describing someone who merely is longing for something. It's not something happening to them, and it's not a description. He's describing a longing for it. You, he's, you don't even have to have the righteousness. You just need to have the longing for righteousness. Happy, envy, blessed, or fortunate to you for that. Isn't that interesting? Uh, a phrase I read that used to, uh, was used to help define this section. Uh, like, for those two words, I saw the phrase, uh, for hunger and thirst, for those two words when I was looking at it. The, as they were putting up a bunch of words of how it could be defined. Uh, one of the phrases, a two-word phrase, came up for both of them. Desire earnestly. If you desire earnestly something, I think that's apt. Blessed are those who earnestly desire righteousness. So what is this word righteousness? Well, it's a judicial word. Uh, we could use the phrase right standing to help us understand it. Uh, but the connection for this word finds its source in God, right standing before God. Because the real meaning of it is that, in right standing with God, or the condition acceptable to God, or approved in his eyes. Those, that's what that word means. Uh, so the standard there, C.S. Lewis, the standard, the standard is the person of God, the being of God. And righteousness is right standing before him in his eyes. That's kind of wonderful and scary at the same time. Satisfied, uh, this word, last word satisfied, it means to feed, fatten, or fill. I love it. Feed, fatten, or fill. It's a good poem, poem there. Um, when, I read, when I read this, I immediately was reminded of Psalm 23 uh, and the verses that said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Or how about Psalm 90? Satisfy us to God in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Or how about Psalm 32 to define this word satisfied? Psalm 132. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. And then Psalm 145. Speaking about God, you open your hand you satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's great. I know I've joked around with Stephen Kratz about this image, and he, as he has with me, but the full larder of Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit is a great image of finding satisfaction in things like ale and seed cakes. 
So to summarize what Jesus is saying here, blessed or happy or fulfilled is the person who is famished, craves, or earnestly desires being approved in the eyes of God. For that person will find it. That's just a great way of looking at that phrase, just summarized, of what Jesus could possibly be getting at. Ask yourselves, are, is, are, do you even have that desire, even now? And I'll talk more about this in a moment, but do you know that you will be satisfied? It says it here. And it has a much, more, much bigger power behind this. But uh, it's something that we're really going to have to get straight in our minds in the coming times. Just having that longing is enough to be called fortunate. But what about the who? Who is Jesus talking about here? Remember, Jesus is talking from the mount to a group of followers. And the way he's saying these things, not just here in verse 6, but in the others, he's, he's stating them as if he's telling them the kind of people they ought to be, or they could, they could be. Blessed are the pure in heart. When he says that. So it's almost like if he's saying, uh, if you're not pure in heart, but if you become pure in heart, then this will happen for you. It's almost like he's inviting challenge. So when we read this, we could conclude understandably that Jesus is talking about a believer, one who follows Christ. And this has a degree of truth to it. And it also has something else going to it, and I'll take those uh, in order. How is it true that Jesus is talking about a follower of God here? Now remember, the individuals Jesus is talking to are familiar, should have been familiar with Jewish scripture. The New Testament had yet to be written, and they knew that God had consistently called the Israelite nation to holiness. I mean, over and over again, we could sit here and read through the Old Testament And we can see how God consistently called his people to be holy, called them to righteousness, called them to be pure in heart. Uh, He called them to choose life and not death. He would even send his prophets when they diverged from that path. And he would bless them more when they walked that right path. You see it over and over again. Uh, You you notice a a contrast in... The, the kings, the books of kings and Samuel, first and second Samuel, what happens when someone, a king, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then what happened when a king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? You see how God responds to that. Because God wants his people to be righteous, distinct, and holy. So for Jesus here to make the statement such as this, or any of the Beatitude statements, would not be completely foreign to the Jews, telling them that a desire for righteousness was to be envied and pursued was similar to God's commands and admonishments of old. So why would this be any different? I mean, even Jesus takes it even further later on when he says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. I mean, he takes it further. So I think there's a level of truth here that Jesus is talking about followers. Those who are, listen, blessed, they will, and they, they will benefit, or they will find fulfillment. They will find satisfaction. 
But he's talking about more than just the follower here. Remember, again, that this book was written to the Jews. This moment in the sermon was in front of Jews, in front of Israelites. So just as they had a millennia, just as they had uh, for a millennia in the history of their, of their nation, commands from God to be holy, they also had the entire temple sacrificial system in their history. Remember that was going, as God was making these, these statements of commands of be holy like I'm holy, follow the righteous path. At the same time, what's going on over in the temple? They're sacrificing animals. And this sacrificial system was the killing of animals as a reminder of how serious the fall of humanity was in God's eyes. Hebrews 9.16 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So daily in the temple, in the sacrificial system, the Israelites were reminded of exactly this, their brokenness, their separateness from God. Be holy as I'm holy. And at the same time, the sacrifices are going on. And the history of the Jews, the history of the Israelites was constantly saying this. It was even going on at the time of Jesus in Herod's temple. But God also reminded them that the sacrificial system was not the point. Psalm 51.16 said this, speaking of God, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. In Ecclesiastes 9, 2, and 3, talking about death here, and in ways talking about our separation, our separating our, our, that it happens for everyone. Everyone experiences death. Everyone experiences sin. It says this in Ecclesiastes 9. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. We are all under the penalty of death, spiritual and physical. That is the consequence of sin for all. Which is why God was calling us to holiness, because we weren't holy. He called the Jews and the Israelites to holiness, and they weren't holy. But then he was having the sacrificial system to remind them of that, that they can't do it. So you see... In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus is not talking about only a follower of God because it is impossible for someone to even have a right desire for righteousness. Paul summed this up well in Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Which leads me to the other who in this verse. Really, the only other who it could possibly be is Jesus the Christ. 
The verse reads, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Who longs for righteousness better than Jesus or God himself? Now, God is not longing for his own righteousness. He is the source of righteousness. So he's not longing for what he already has. Jesus' longing was for his brothers, his sisters, his friends, his followers, his servants. He longed to save them. He longed for us to be righteous. He hungered and thirsted for our righteousness. He longed to restore us to himself. If you doubt this, read Mark 14, 35 and 36. And it says this about Jesus. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was asking for the restoration of us to himself in some other way here, if it was God's will. But then, didn't he say, it is finished? So that, righteous, that righteousness he earnestly desired for us was accomplished and is now ours by the Holy Spirit. Really, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Beatitudes. I mean, look at it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How is he poor in spirit? Well, doesn't it say in Philippians 2 that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing? He set aside his power and became a poor human being. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, Jesus didn't, didn't Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus? It's the shortest verse in the New Testament. He mourned his friend, but he also mourned that the power of death still prevailed, and he later defeated that. Blessed are the meek. Jesus certainly seemed to have been meek. I heard meekness is, could be defined as knowing you have the power to respond and prevail, but choosing not to do it. That's what meekness is. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of that verse. Could I not call legions of angels and they would come to me? And he didn't do that. Blessed are the merciful. Certainly Jesus was merciful. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Blessed are the pure in heart. I'm not sure I could argue that Jesus had one iota of impurity in his heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus made ultimate peace between God and humanity. Blessed are those who persecuted you for righteousness sake. Wasn't Jesus persecuted and subsequently crucified for who he was? He was righteous and we killed him for it. And then blessed are those who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil. This is just a restating of the previous one. So there, you, there it is, right there. Jesus is the answer. And all of this he accomplished for us. So since Jesus has granted it to us, already given it to you, imputed whatever theological or... or uh, less uh, theological word you want to use, should we stop hungering and thirsting after righteousness since it has been accomplished through Christ? Well, let the Apostle Paul answer that with Romans 6, 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What's Paul saying here? Should we continue to pursue uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness? Absolutely, because that's... We're made that way now. We've been made to do that. We've been given the righteousness, and we continue to live that out in our sanctification here on earth. Should we continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Yes, because God has infinite righteousness to give us, and it will literally take forever to get to know and get all that righteousness. So what shall we do now? Well, if you don't know Christ, then you should make a point to look into who he was and what he did. How he, he thirsted, hungered and thirsted for our righteousness. Because if all these things in, in the scriptures and what the scriptures say and I talk about, if he did all these things, then we should fall at his feet and call him Lord. If you do, you will find out how willing he is to share these beatitudes with you. If you already know Christ, then continue on this path of being satisfied. But do it remembering that it is in God that we experience all this blessedness. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus here, for righteousness, he uses the imagery of hunger and thirst. Let me stand here for a moment and think about what other image out there reminds us about being hungry and thirsting for God. Hmm. Do you think that's an, an accident? Maybe Jesus had that in his mind when he made this statement. He probably made it more than once to the disciples. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death. I would say, if you're not a believer, think about exactly that. What these elements behind me mean, that we're going to partake of soon. They represent uh, this life that Jesus lived. The death that he died and the resurrection that he accomplished. If you're a brother and sister in Christ, as you approach it, exalt in that. This is an image of being satisfied. Hunger and thirst. And it represents that feast that Stephen and I often talk about in the coming feast. What's going to be on that table? Is it going to have barbecue? (laughs) He certainly will have the best wine. Because he won't need to serve bad wine. Because bad wine won't exist on the feast table. But... Brothers and sisters, let us continue to hunger and thirst after righteousness, because we will be satisfied. Let me pray. Father, thanks uh, for this time, the opportunity for us to just take some moments to dive into your word and kick around what, what we think you're saying to us and what you have said to us, to 
do that together in community here as we worship you. We worship you and the fact that you've given us and revealed to us your word. Uh, That's no small thing. Help us to continue to grow in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, Lord, certainly show the satisfaction uh, that you've given us in that not only in what Christ accomplished, but the satisfaction that is to come when you return again and we will all be around the feast table and there will no longer be hunger and thirst. There will only be satisfaction. And for that, we do thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.